Our scripture passage this morning comes from the Old Testament book of Joshua. We start with chapter 2 and read verses 1 through 15. Hear now the word of the Lord. Joshua, Nun's son, secretly sent two men as spies from Shittim. He said, go, look over the land, especially Jericho. They set out and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab. They bedded down there. Someone told the king of Jericho, men from the Israelites have come here tonight to spy on the land. So the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, send out the men who came to you, the ones who come to your house, because they have come to spy on the entire land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. Then she said, of course the men came to me, but I didn't know where they were from. The men left when it was time to close the gate at dark but I don't know where the men went. Hurry, chase after them. You might catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the flax stalks that she had laid out on the roof. The men from Jericho chased after them in the direction of the Jordan up to the fords. As soon as those chasing him went out, the gate was shut behind them. Before the spies bedded down, Rahab went up to them on the roof. She said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Terror over you has overwhelmed us. The entire population of the land has melted down in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Reed Sea in front of you when you left Egypt. We've also heard what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites on the other side of the Jordan. You utterly wiped them out. We heard this and our hearts turned to water. Because of you, people can no longer work up their courage. This is because the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now I have been loyal to you, so I pledge faith. So I pledge to me by the Lord that you in turn will deal loyally with my family. Give me a sign of good faith. Spare the lives of my father, mother, brothers, and sisters, along with everything they own. Rescue us from death. The men said to her, we swear by our own lives to secure yours. If you don't reveal our mission, we will deal loyally and faithfully with you when the Lord gives us the land. So she lowered the spies on a rope through the window. Her house was on the outer side of the city wall, and she lived inside the wall. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God within us, for the word of God among us, thanks be to God. Amen. Fifty-four percent. Fifty-four percent. At its best, data can be revealing in a way that it shows us what our guts kind of can intuit on their own, the things that we think we know, but it's helpful to see in black and white facts and figures with our own eyes. Data can be revealing in that way, 54%. That is the amount my screen time increased this past week, according to an iPhone alert I got this morning. Was I alone in that increase? What a nice, tidy little number. 54% quantifies my personal obsession and anxiety that I'm afraid to admit before you today over this past week, an obsession and anxiety that I believe gripped much of our nation this week. You don't need me to tell you 
about the complicated and complex emotions that you no doubt felt these past seven days. You don't need me to tell you this week felt like a year. Did you know last weekend was Halloween? You don't need me to tell you that this year continues to feel like a lifetime, 54%. But again, data can also be revealing in a different way. Sometimes it shows us those things that maybe we wanted to try our best to ignore. Maybe we wanted to believe they weren't true, but then they're in black and white facts and figures right in front of our faces. We can no longer deny or ignore that which is right in front of us. A couple of numbers stuck out to me this week. The first was this one, 74,488,666. It's the number of votes that were cast as last I checked yesterday in preparation for this sermon, the number of votes that have been cast for President-elect Joe Biden, the most number of votes ever cast for any U.S. candidate for president in any U.S. election in our nation's history. Here's a second number that jumped out to me. 70,337,285. It's the number of votes that last I checked yesterday had been cast for President Donald Trump. The second most number of votes ever cast for any U.S. candidate for president in any election in our nation's history. What do these two numbers reveal to us this week? 74 million, 70 million, what do they reveal to us? Well, first it reveals to me that we care deeply about our future. It's the highest voter turnout we have seen in any modern election. We care deeply about our future. There's a reason people go to the polls even when there's a global pandemic. There's a reason people figure out how to mail in vote if they've never done that before. There's a reason people show up to vote at all in any form or fashion. It's because they care about the future. We're a people who deeply care about our future. But these numbers also reveal that we deeply disagree when we begin to ask ourselves the questions of where do we want to go and what kind of vision and values and policy do we want to guide us. We deeply disagree. But lastly, I would also add these numbers to me reveal the presence of fear, perhaps an overwhelming fear for many. Because I know one of the reasons that people get motivated to go to the polls is not so much that they want to cast a vote for a candidate they love, but more they're going to cast a vote for a candidate they fear the least. I know that was a motivator for many this year. Data can be revealing. I was grateful for the president-elect's words last night in his speech when he said, it is now time for us to come together and to begin to heal our soul as a nation. I hope that those words resonated for you wherever you sit. I hope that you can agree that now is a time for healing. And I hope that you would also agree as the people that profess to be the body of Christ here on earth, I hope that as the church, we could be the ones that could help lead that effort. I hope we see that as part of our calling, to be healers, not just in our nation, but in our larger world as well. I hope we hear that call and know that is our work to do. But can I be honest, when I look at the data, when I look at those numbers in black and white, facts and figures right before my eye, when I look and they reveal to me what I maybe didn't want to acknowledge, but now I know to be true, the level of division 
the work that we have to do, I can feel just a tinge of hopelessness. Do you? Even as I breathe a sigh of relief or perhaps hang my head in fear, I feel a little tinge of hopelessness. So what do I do? What do we do when people are overcome by fear? And when walls are well-built and well-fortified, seemingly indestructible, and when the stakes are high and hope is low, who does God call us to be, especially if we feel called to be healers? How does God call us to be? Today we're going to continue in our series on good trouble borrowing from the words of the late, great John Lewis, who reminds us that we are supposed to get in good trouble, and and not just trouble for the sake of trouble, but good trouble for the sake of our faith, led by the Spirit of God to be risk-takers, rule-breakers, and good trouble-makers in the world around us. And today, we turn our attention to a saint who's going to guide us, I believe, in this moment well, and her name is Rahab. I'd like to share her story with you today. Rahab's story is not one that we hear very often. There's this thing called the lectionary in the church. A lot of denominations will follow it. It's a three-year cycle of Scripture readings from the Old and New Testaments, and it's designed to help us get a a breadth and depth of Scripture on a three-year period if we show up to church every Sunday. But here's the problem. Rahab's story is nowhere to be found in the lectionary. If we as a church were to follow the lectionary every single Sunday, we would never hear her story preached from a pulpit. Rahab unfortunately gets forgotten all too often, and I think there's some reasons why. Here's what we need to know as we step into the story today. It it, it comes to us in the book of Joshua. If you don't know anything about the book of Joshua, that's okay. Here's the short version. Before Joshua, there's this guy named Moses, and even if you don't know anything about Moses' story, maybe you've seen Charlton Heston or the Prince of Egypt if you're younger, Uh, but Moses is the one that God calls and leads the Israelites out of Egypt, out of slavery. Liberation is their story. And Moses leads the people into the wilderness. And then Moses gets really old and realizes it's not going to be him that leads them into the promised land, this place that was promised to them by God. And so Moses appoints a successor, this man named Joshua. And Joshua's job is going to be be leading the Israelites from the wilderness into the promised land. But there's only one problem, and it's a big problem. There are these city-states like Jericho with big fortified walls. Last week, we talked about kings with little k. Well, they got kings with little k's in these places as well, and they are standing between God's people and the promised land. So Joshua's going to have to figure out how to get past Jericho, this opposition, this place that feels so overwhelming and so impossible. And who is going to be the secret to Joshua's success? Her name is Rahab. The Scripture says this, Joshua was noon's son, and he secretly sent two men as spies from Shittim. Now, I love that it says that he secretly sent spies. I just want to stop and say this is a great example of when you need a good editor. How else do you send spies, Joshua? I love the idea of Joshua announcing, hey, we got some spies coming, look look out. Just sometimes you need someone to take those redundant words out. He secretly sent two spies. And he said to them, it says, very secretly, of course, go look over the land, especially Jericho. And so they set out, these spies set out, and they entered a house of a prostitute named Rahab, and they bedded down there, it says. 
Now, I want to stop here for a second and talk about who Rahab is, because I feel like when we do talk about Rahab, unfortunately, at least in my experience, I have heard her mischaracterized more times than I would like to count. And so, let's set the record straight. First of all, some people, I think, feel awkward about preaching or teaching on a scripture involving a leader who also happens to be a prostitute. And so they'll try to, in some weird way, save her from that reality and say, you know what, that word for prostitute in the Hebrew language, it actually could also mean innkeeper if you parse it out the right way. And here's the problem with that is there is nothing in this scripture that makes it sound like she's an innkeeper. In fact, the scripture tries to make pretty abundantly clear that she's someone who is not living the best of lives doesn't say there's anybody else staying in her home. She doesn't have a husband or a family. There's no sign that she has any sense of personal wealth. I don't know that we're supposed to treat Rahab as an innkeeper. In fact, I think we try to remove the word prostitute from her story because it makes us uncomfortable and we're not sure how we feel about it. But then I also see Rahab mischaracterized in a different way. And that's when people try to, to paint her as some lustful harlot who's chosen this life out of sin. This is maybe the worst thing we could do to Rahab's story. Let's be honest with each other. There are very, 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 very few women, whether they lived 4,000 years ago or live today, who choose this life. Almost always, this life is chosen for them out of necessity, specifically out of financial indebtedness. That was Rahab's story, most likely. Her family was so indebted, so financially destitute, that she had two options in those days. One was to be sold as a slave, to go live God knows where, to work for God knows who, to do God knows what. Never see her family again. No hope of a future. Her second option was to live this life. And in response, we remove her name from the lectionary and we paint her as a lusty harlot. Come on, people of God, we can do better than that. I say all this, and if it's a little uncomfortable, good. I say all this to say this. Rahab's story is important for us to remember. First and foremost, who she is is important to remember because Rahab's story was the Israelite story. She was not a lusty harlot who was giving into sin. She was someone who was bound up in chains, chains of financial indebtedness, who was in need of liberation, just like the Hebrew people were in Egypt. And we're about to find out just how similar her story was. People of God, let me say this, we are people of liberation, not condemnation. If we are going to be about a healing work in this country, if we're going to be about a healing work in this world, if we believe we have anything to offer to the world around us, we had better be a people who seek to liberate, a people of liberation, not of condemnation. Okay, let's keep going. So, this next part of the story is trying to connect Rahab's story to the Israelite story. If you were with us last week, you heard about Shifra and Pua. And if you weren't, I hope that you'll go back and listen. It's a really fascinating story, another one that unfortunately does not get told enough. But there are a lot of little connections in their stories. First of all, there's this king with a little K who lives in Jericho. Remember the king with a little K who lived in Egypt? He doesn't get named here either. We know Rahab's name. We know Shifra and Pua. We don't know the king. And the king goes to Rahab and says, make sure you kick these spies out of your home if they come here. Because, you know, I heard that we've got spies in the land. So it turns out Joshua wasn't as secretive as he thought. But it says that Rahab had hidden them. Twice it says this, that she had hidden them upstairs. You know, that word hidden is interesting. It appears only one other time in the Old Testament. You want to know where? 
It's when Moses' mother hides him in a basket and sets him down the Nile River. Rahab's story is the Hebrew people's story. Lastly, the king with a little K, he approaches her in this way, right? And what does she do in response? It's, this, it's almost verbatim the same thing as Shifra and Pua. She plays dumb. Oh my gosh, can, you know, I, I think that they might have been here. I, oh goodness, who, who can keep track anymore these days, right? But I think they went that away. Go quick, chase them down. And then it's kind of a comedy scene as the guards go running off into the hills for no one. If you were listening to the story 4,000 years ago, you'd be rolling on the floor laughing. It's hilarious. But it's also important to remember how little this king with a little K thinks about Rahab, that surely this woman could never get the better of me, and she uses that to her advantage. And she breaks one little law out of devotion to a higher law. She's willing to tell a lie and to deceive a king because she knows that the Lord is at work, and she needs to be about some righteous troublemaking. Rahab's story is the Israelite story. The author is clearly connecting the two. Maybe you've read the Old Testament at times and wondered, golly, this sounds exclusive. God sounds mean and vengeful. Where is the grace? And I would ask us to read a little bit closer and to see that even here, even in Joshua chapter 2, this, this, this Israelite people are already under the leadership of God inviting new people in, inviting a Canaanite prostitute named Rahab who they have no business identifying or even caring about. And yet God says her, yes, her and her family, she needs to be a part of this movement. Draw the circle wider. Bring her in. Bring her on board. So let's see what Rahab has to share with the spies, she says this, the, what I want us to notice in this passage in, in verse 9. She says, I know that the Lord has given you this land. She's talking to the spies now. She says, terror has overwhelmed us. The entire population of the land has melted down in fear. Do we know what a land that's melted down in fear feels like? Then she says the word heard three times. We have heard about what happened at the Reed Sea. We have heard about what happened in those other kingdoms. We have heard all of this, and our hearts, she also hears Jericho's hearts turn to water. Rahab is incredibly tuned in to the fears of Jericho. That's why she is the perfect person for these spies to have found. She is a very, very good listener. She doesn't just listen for what the Israelites are doing outside of the walls. She listens inside the walls as well. She listens within the walls of Jericho, and here's the fear that has overwhelmed them. She is a good listener. My friends, I believe listening is a spiritual practice and a sacred work. And I was thinking about that this week when I read about Dr. Alan Schwartz. He's got a really long title. Do you want to hear it? He is the associate professor, the director of research for the Department of Medical Education at the University of Illinois at Chicago. That's when you know you've made it, when you got a really long, impressive title like that. Here's what he basically does. He, he teaches med students, and he experiments on them too. What he did is he took a class of med students, and he divided them into two groups. And he said, in this group, I'm going to put them through a workshop on being sensitized listeners. I'm going to teach them how to listen closely to their patients and to allow what their patients are telling them to inform the treatment they then recommend. And then on this group, we're not going to do any of that training. We're not going to teach them how to be good listeners, and we're going to see what happens. What do you think happened? The group that had been taught how to listen and listen well to their patients 
They were far superior med students. Across the board in every category, they were tremendously better as a result. Have you ever been to a doctor who didn't want to listen to you? Have you ever had someone step into your life in a position of healing, but they didn't want to hear what you had to say? How frustrating is that? Do you feel like you're in good hands? If we hope to be healers in this place, in this time, in this season, if we hope to reach out and approach people in a position of healing, we had better learn how to listen too. If we hope to address the divides and the fears that are plaguing and overwhelming and turning our, heart, our hearts to water right now, we had better be ready to listen and listen well and not listen so that we can, we can retort, not listen so we can explain why the patient is wrong, not listen so that we can laugh at them or mock them, but listen so that it could inform the healing approach that we then take. My friends, the best healers are good listeners. We need to practice the sacred work of listening and listening well if we hope to offer anything good and anything healing to this nation around us. So the story concludes in this chapter 2 passage that we heard this morning, and basically Rahab says to the spies, okay, now that I'm helping you guys, you know, my neck's on the line, so when you come and conquer this city, Rahab knows what happens to cities that get conquered. She knows that when you conquer a city, you level it. In this day and age, it's not like today. We can't judge Old Testament texts by modern UN foreign policy standards. In those days, when you conquered someone, you leveled it, and you destroyed everything, and nothing was left. And Rahab says, please don't let that happen to me and my family. My neck's on the line for you. Save me, please. Save my mother, my father, my siblings, and all that they own. Please save us. And the spies say, yes, we'll save you. And then there's this last verse, and just like last week when I said there are some blink-and-you'll-miss-it moments, this is a blink-and-you'll-miss-it moment when it says she lowered the spies down on the rope through the window, and her house was on the outer side of the city wall, and she lived within the wall. Put a pin in that. I'm going to come back to it in a moment. This wall, this wall of Jericho. Maybe you don't know the story of Jericho, but if you do, you know how Jericho's story ends. That wall plays an important role, does it not? It's the song that we teach our children to sing. The walls of Jericho came a-tumbling down. Those walls are what spell defeat for them in the end. The walls come crumbling. Jericho is brought to an end, and just like they had, Rahab and her family are all that remain in the end. So this question bubbles up for me this week. As I survey all that is around us, as I, as I look at what we have before us, as I look at the work that we have to do, I hear this text asking me, where is Jericho today? I didn't say who is Jericho today. Where is Jericho today? I don't believe our job is to end a people, but instead to look for those places where fear is rampant and fortified walls are in place. Where are the places that fear and fortified walls stand in the way between God's ever-growing family and a promised land, vision, destination? I think about the Jericho of racial justice where fears of knees on necks and riots in streets mean that fortified walls are firmly in place. I think about the Jericho of gun violence. 
courts or the Jericho of economic opportunity or the Jericho of political tribalism or the Jericho of uh, gender equality or Jericho of you fill in the blank. What are the Jerichos you see when you look at the map and you think about where's the fear? Where are the walls that stand between God's ever-growing family and the promised land destination that is God's holy vision? Where are the Jerichos today? It turns out there are a lot of Jerichos between us and the promised land. Joshua will find this out in his story. If you choose to read Joshua this week, there are a lot of Jerichos in the way. But notice where Rahab made her home. Rahab lived within the wall. And what does the wall ultimately do? It crumbles down because of her actions, because of the good trouble she risked herself in. We as the people called the body of Christ, are called to position ourselves within the walls of the Jerichos that we see in those spaces between what is and what could be, listening intently, working to break down the barriers that stand in the way. And let me be clear, friends, as we talk this talk of healing and unity, let me be clear, this is not lame duck, kumbaya, hand-holding niceties masquerading as unity. That's not what we're talking about. Rahab engages in risky work, but it's work that makes good trouble and work that lasts, and it's work that requires us to put our necks on the line and to risk some things. What do we risk, you might ask, by living in the walls? What do we risk by hoping to crumble the walls of the Jerichos before us? Well, like Rahab, we risk being called a traitor by those who would say, how could you possibly want to with people like that? How could you possibly want to hold conversation with those people? How could you possibly want to include those people in this ever-growing family of faith? How could you possibly want to reach out to heal people like that? You also risk the pain and the frustration that comes from long arduous, incremental work. My friends, there have been people at work bringing walls of Jericho down for generations upon generations, and there are still so many Jerichos still standing today. We will not reach the promised land. Our children, our grandchildren may not reach the promised land. We do this work. We are willing to risk some personal pain and frustration along the way because we hope upon hope that one day our children's 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 child could maybe See, a horizon promise of a promised land that's just over the edge. I'm not sure what emotions you have felt this week. No doubt they have been complex and complicated just like me. I have felt enough feels this week to last me a year. I don't like feels. Anybody else type amen in the chat. I'm good on my feelings for a while now. Thank you very much. But I do know this. I hope that we can wake up tomorrow or maybe next Monday, but don't let too many Mondays go by. I hope that we can wake up ready to get back to work because this is the work. This healing work, this good trouble, risk-making, risk-taking work is what we signed up for when we said yes to Jesus' vision in the world. This week, God is calling us to be Rahab's in the walls of Jericho. When people are overwhelmed by fear, Could we listen with the ears of a healer? When the walls are high and fortified well, seemingly indestructible, could we live within the walls? And when the stakes are high and hope is so low, 
May we be faithful rule breakers and risk takers, trusting that fear and division will crumble in the end. My friends, be Rahab in the walls of Jericho. Because these walls, these walls won't crumble themselves. Amen.